BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Maurice Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, with concerns over the coronavirus mounting, employers are canceling travel and conferences, telling people to work from home if they can, major sports leagues are suspending games, and President Trump is blocking travel to the U.S. from Europe. That's right. In addition to the major health concerns, it's also threatening to upend California's economy, indeed the world economy, which here we heavily depend on travel, tourism, and the service economy. And so we've invited the governor's point man on economic and business issues, Lenny Mendoza. He is here. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. It's great to be here, Scott and Marissa. Wish Good to we, have you. Wish, yeah, I wish it could have been better circumstances, I guess. Well, and I, you know, I imagine that when you took this job, you never <laughs> imagined that you would be focusing on this uh, particular thing, the coronavirus. Take us through, if you would, the past 24 or 48 hours. What have you been talking with the governor and other people about regarding this crisis? You know, um, Obviously, this was not something that anyone expected when they agreed to do anything. But what you do is you think through what is the scenarios about how something could play out. And the good news is in the public health world, that is a well-established playbook. And you just watch how that playbook plays out and you take one step at a time. But your job is to think about the business ramifications. So talk us through that. Those are intersected. So you have an intersection of an event that's going on and how it plays out in terms of the response to that from public health, which has economic implications as well. And so you need to think in the same way. A playbook for how things might play out in different scenarios is the same thing how businesses have forever thought about how things might play out in an economic standpoint. And so it's just going through a a set of scenarios, thinking about what might happen, and then you respond to those. And that's, that's what business under uncertainty is like. It's not a new tool. It's not a new way of thinking. It's the way that businesses have since, um, you know, at least two decades had a management planning under uncertainty approach. And that's what you do. So you come from, I mean, the private sector, you worked at McKinley, you um, own co-own Half Moon uh, Brewing Company, um, which we can talk about later. But you also have a lot of civic and philanthropic uh, sort of credentials. But this is, I believe, the first time you've been inside of government. 
how what has surprised you, heartened you, concerned you being in, you know, in here during as this crisis has unfolded in the last week or so? Sure. So I was at McKinsey for 30 years, and that's, um, you know, a pretty good training for yeah, right. how to think about business <laughs> in a global and complex environment. Also, Pete Buttigieg's former employer, uh, yes, as we heard exactly. about. We didn't we didn't work together. He came after me, but I do know him. Um, but we, uh, I, I did that. And then what I did was spend several years, five years, after spending a year um, on a midlife um, uh, shoot, what's the word I'm thinking of? Crisis? Uh, no, no, not midlife <laughs> crisis. I'm thinking a, a uh, gap year, midlife okay. gap year. Okay. So um, decided to uh, that year go travel with the Giants for a year. So my oh, wife, and San I, Francisco Giants. On the last year, they won the World Series. Were you like the ball, one of the ball dudes? No, we were the fans <laughs> that were really dedicated. We went to uh, every National League ballpark to see them, and they did not lose a game that we went to on the road until game six of the World Series. Wow. So. That was my year. So they need you so now. Good luck. Yes, and good luck. Sorry, the question was what? The question what's was the... just like, what's it like being in government at this time after having spent so much time outside of government and trying to support them from the outside? Sure. So um, it's, uh, I had spent all of that time um, doing advisory work and thinking about how things might happen, and then you advise from the outside, and when you're inside, you're also advising. You're advising the principal, which is the governor. And then you're also making decisions as you go. So, you know, it's not that big a shift for me. It's this, excuse me, this governor comes from a, a business background. He was a small business, not so small, sometimes business owner. How does that, do you think, affect the way he thinks about a crisis like this? You know, I think uh, being able to have a variety of backgrounds, as he does, um, is really helpful no matter what the situation is. It's certainly true if you've got an, an urgent set of decisions you have to make. If you're an executive and if you had to make payroll and how to deal with those things, you know how to make decisions. You know how to make decisions quickly. You know how to think about your employees. You know how to think about what you're doing in the community. And so that helps in terms of thinking. But being able to have a experience that's a combination of business experience, public sector experience, and then, you know, again, he spent Eight, mu- eight years as lieutenant governor. So it's not like this is a new thing. And mayor. I mean, that yeah. was and also a whole different that, yeah. set of uh, exactly. experiences. Yeah, executive there. So you were standing behind the governor today as he talked about what the state is doing, what restrictions it's laying out. Um, what role are you playing? He mentioned at one point that you're on the phone with people from around the world. Can you just talk about kind of where you sit in all of this? So um, I'm his chief economic and business advisor. And so I also oversee the Office of Business and Economic Development. And business and economic development is the interface with the business community. And so in that role, we're interacting with all kinds of businesses and stakeholders around the world all the time. So whether that's the we have a part of our agency is Visit California, the tourism and promotion agency. So obviously that industry is being impacted pretty directly. And so having a rich understanding and knowing all of the leadership of that industry helps a lot when that's one of the ones that um, has, has consequences. So that's part of it. The other part of it is um, being able to have conversations with people that you know from either that role or prior networks. So we're on the phone with people all the time. One of the things that came up today in the press conference was, and the, I think the governor brought it up, uh, he mentioned that in the initial uh, set of things that were happening and uh, events that were being canceled and so on. The Disneyland originally was not part of that. He also mentioned casinos and card rooms. He later, uh, later today, uh, subsequently, Disneyland announced they were going to be closing those venues for some time. Can you describe, you know, 
that seems to me like a very complicated set of negotiations. I mean, you've got the Indian tribes. I, I don't major... think about this as negotiations. You think about this as complicated set of decisions that need to be made. Mm-hmm. And when you're making decisions with only partial information based on what you've got, you make the best decision you can. And then you have the conversation to say, what, here's what we suggested as guidelines. And people have to adhere to those guidelines. And, you know, am I going to tell you you should not be opening your corner store? And am I going to do that for 40 million people in the state? No, that's not how you do it. So this is just the natural playing out of how you make those kinds of decisions. So, you know, we obviously you mentioned tourism, a huge industry here. We've already seen declines, you know, with travel from China being restricted and, and, and what's happening there. Um, what are your kind of top line concerns when it comes to the economy and the trade-off between, you know, sort of purposely slowing down economic activity right now to, so quote-unquote, flatten the curve um, versus the long-term implications. So let me talk about that in the context of kind of where California is. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, it's not surprising that an issue like this would hit California relatively early um, because we're globally connected. You know, we're a place where a lot of things that would be um, sp- spreading in terms of innovation or something like this are going to start and spread. So that's not surprising, right? And so what we need to think about in this context is what is it that California is is distinctively able to do? We are innovative, we are flexible, and we are resilient. And so, you know, there's opportunities here despite all the challenges that are going on. So I'm happy to give you examples of that. But so uh, I'll give you one that is not the first thing that people think of. So, um, Right now, there are roughly 100,000 people every day who commute, super commutes, from the Central Valley to the Bay Area, and the equivalent number who do that from Inland Empire to Los Angeles, Orange County, and San Diego. Many of those people need to do that because they're doing construction or things that you have to be physically. But there's a large number of them that do that because the economic opportunities on the coasts are greater than what they could make where they are. So what happens if that actually shifts? where people can work where they live as opposed to commuting a long distance to be able to afford where they where they uh, live. And this is a pattern that was already starting to happen in terms of people having more dispersion of where they live and work. And I think that this just accelerates some of that, more remote work. None of us know where this is going, this uh, coronavirus uh, situation. But uh, And I know that you're, it's changing daily, literally. But what what do you see as the potential economic impact on the state and on the budget? So, um, you know, we're, we're in a period where it's important to have uh, flexibility and resiliency. California has had a, heading into this situation, a budget surplus, conservatively budget. This is the way that California has done budgeting through Jerry Brown. It's the way that's done with this governor. He said from the beginning, what we're going to do is have a budget that is aspirational in terms of focusing on things that can deliver for the state of California and resilient to whatever may come our way. And that's that turns out to be a very good idea when you're in uncertain <laughs> times. And so that's the way a business would do this, too, which is why this is for the governor and for anyone who thinks like a business person, this is completely natural. If you have a revenue stream that's volatile, what you do is try and figure out how you have reserves so that when it's when it's comes but, down, you're but there. given the size of the budget and the size of the reserves, uh, as we know, you could go through that reserve. Yeah, really I mean, it fast. doesn't protect for everything, but yeah. you know, we're the 
you know, the uh, environment is such that we're in a much better position than almost any other place. This is, you know, what you do is you budget yeah. for conservatively. One thing that, and we're going to get into your biography a little bit more after our break, but one thing that's unique about, I think, you is that you come from this private sector background, you're in this economic development role, but you talk and think a lot about inequality, about protecting the lowest wage workers, and um, and I think that you've done a lot of work around that. Uh, you know, we're hearing a lot out of Washington about potential payroll tax cuts, you know, delaying the tax filing deadline, potentially trying to bail out industries like the airlines, um, cruise ships. What what in an ideal world, from your mind, does the federal government do? And, and what more should the state be doing when we think about sort of protecting the most vulnerable economically? So, you know, one of the exciting things about why I wanted to join Governor Newsom's team was his view about uh, California for all. And that is often framed as an economic justice issue, a, a social justice issue, which it is. But it's also an economic issue. And so it is not contradictory to say that we need to have a just economy and we need to have a just society. Those, in fact, fit with each other. And so what I think we uh, are attempting to do, and this is still exactly what we're doing, nothing's changed in that environment, is how you think about how to have an economy that is growing and innovative, how to have an economy that's more inclusive, and how to have one that's resilient to what might come its way. That's exactly what we're doing. So we're playing that playbook. All right. We're going to take a short break right now. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Lenny Mendoza. He is Governor Newsom's chief economic and business advisor. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Governor Newsom's chief economic and business advisor, Lenny Mendoza. And Lenny, um, you have an interesting background. You grew up in the Central Valley in Turlock. I think your grandparents were immigrants from Portugal. Uh, Tell us about growing up on that dairy farm. Uh, You obviously got into business, and we'll talk about the brewery in a minute, the microbrewery. But, uh, you know, talk about growing up on a dairy farm in Turlock. so it was a great grounding experience, um, really hard work. It learnt, teaches you to how to get up really early. Cows don't take vacations, so you work 24 <laughs> hours. I mean, uh, 360. Were they days. happy cows? They were very happy cows. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it's it is really hard work there, and I have a deep appreciation for that. What did you do as a kid? You must yeah. have had chores, right? 
Oh, yeah. I did see a picture of you petting uh, a little uh, a calf, I think it was. That's probably <laughs> not his only chore, petting the yeah, calf, no, right? No, the, the, <laughs> I think you had a bucket in your hand yeah, also. You got up every morning before you went to school, and we had we fed the cows, or, and that was what you did. And then when you came home at night as you got older, we fed them again if you weren't playing baseball or something. And then when you got a little bit older, we milked the cows in the morning or milked them at night. So it's like that's what you do. Do you – I mean, was there an expectation that you would stay there and take over the dairy farm? Did you always know that you kind of wanted to go on to other things? So I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. Okay. Um, my next younger brother and I were pretty clear pretty early on that he wanted to take over the farm mm-hmm. and do that, and I did not. And so that all worked out great. That's awesome. <laughs> Turlock is not that far from here. It's, uh, what, 90 minutes maybe, something like uh, that. On a good on day. Depending on the traffic, <laughs> yeah. of course. It's 100 miles. But how, did it, how far did it seem to you as a kid to be in like the Bay Area, San Francisco? Did it seem like a total faraway place? It felt like a very faraway place physically because we would only come here you know, at most once a year for a couple days on when we, my dad got a break. But it did not seem like a faraway place um, in terms of connection to it. When um, we were milking cows, my dad would always have the radio on, and he wasn't listening to music all the time. Sometimes he would, but he'd listen to talk shows. So I listened to the Commonwealth Club when I was a kid, when I was milking cows. Wow. And That's so, so interesting. Is that how you sort of first got aware of the world and politics and issues uh, and so on? It, it was that and uh, reading and listening and talking to friends. And so it's just... You know, there's uh, one of my best friends from high school. My best friend, still my best friend, is uh, Alex Evans, who was um, Eric Swalwell's chief of staff and campaign advisor until very recently. So we were high school classmates. Was politics discussed at home? Were your parents political? My my parents were not political. My parents were um, community oriented. Mm. My mother was the uh, taught catechism at the local high school, at the local um, Catholic schools, and my father was um, the uh, head of the local fire volunteer fire district. So civics was civic, was really ingrained. You uh, you know sometimes people who get into government or politics they really like Jerry Brown wasn't at all interested in politics in high school, but you were you were the president I think of your high school class. You were also the editor of your school newspaper. Uh, how did how did you get into those things? Um, it was much more around an interest in trying to make a difference in the world. And so it was the ideas and the opportunity to believe that you're sitting in this little town and you're in this big, interesting world. Is there a way to make a dent in it? And so that's what it was. How it did wasn't... you go about that? Like, what did, what did you do with it? Like, did you have student drives to raise money? Or, like, what did you do to try to, you know, achieve that? Um, I was involved in student government, so I was student body president. Um, I was, uh, for one part of the time, editor of the school newspaper. I was involved with Junior Statesman of America, where I saw you the other yeah. night, as part of a national youth-led civic organization, which really got me exposed to a lot of opportunities. Um, I read everything I could get my hands on um, and just thought it would be um, an opportunity when you're sitting around, What you know? don't, don't just sit there, go read something. You also in high school met your wife, is I that did. right? Um, talk about Christine and uh, gosh, like I mean, what a remarkable long relationship through a, through a lot of different chapters. It seems like yeah. Well, we were um, high school sweethearts and um, long distance um, relationship when she was in school here and I was in school on the East Coast, nice. and then we got engaged 
in my spring break my junior year and got married oh, wow. a week after graduation. Wow. If you're just joining us, uh, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking today with the man who has Governor Newsom's ear on economic and business matters. Lenny Mendoza is his chief advisor on those matters. You uh, you went from Turlock. We were talking about how far away San Francisco was. You ended up going to Harvard, which is on the other side of the country, of course. Did your parents encourage that, or were they afraid, you know, they were going to lose you? No, they were incredibly encouraging. It was my, my father's parents came to to Turlock through some other places, but from the Azores. My mother's parents were Dust Bowl refugees and came to California via Oregon. And they were incredibly supportive and said, you can, you know, this is the land of opportunity here, the land of big dreams. You should dream and do whatever you want. And so they were very encouraging. And you got an MBA at Stanford later. I did. Uh, so did you, what, did, you, did you know you wanted to go in that direction, sort of a business direction? Um, I did not. I was always interested in the intersection between business and government. And so I went to um, McKinsey in New York for a couple of years. I had already committed to come back to California when I went there and then did that and thought it was really, really interesting and ended up staying there for 30 years. And towards the end of it, doing a lot of work advising public sector leaders as part of that that work. So it was that was where it, where it ended up going. So where were you working for McKinsey? You were here based in the Bay Area? Or? I, I started in New York for two years. Then I was in San Francisco for the rest of my time okay. physically, although the last five years I worked in Washington, D.C. and lived in San Francisco. So, you know, they do a wide range of types of consulting. What Anything you did there that might surprise us or that was particularly sort of different than the direction you ended up going? I'm not sure it would be surprising, but I did um, – I, I chaired and spent a lot of time on chairing their think tank. So I did a lot of work in intellectual uh, development. Um, I oversaw McKinsey's – publishing, public relations, and all that activity. So we had a big journalistic activity going on at that point in time and still do. Um, and then I helped set up their public sector practice. At some point, you decided it would be a good idea to open up a microbrewery, Half Moon Bay <laughs> Brewery. Tell us about that. I mean, I know you live in Half Moon Bay, and that's where the business is. How'd you get into beer? So um, April 1st, which is not that far from now, will be 20 years from when we opened it. Congratulations. And thank yeah, you. And so it was, I was a home brewer. And when we got finished working on my house, thought it would be fun to do something a little bit, you know, hobby and turn it into something. And just hired some people and they ran, opened the brewery. So it's been 20 years. What, I mean, you had an MBA, you worked at, you know, this consulting firm, but like what, being a frontline sort of business owner in a restaurant setting, what have you learned? What, what, what differences are there from like the theoretical to the on the ground? It's incredibly valuable. So, you know, you actually have to deal with frontline employees every day. You deal with how do you help them through their challenges. You deal with how do you be a responsible member of a community. You deal with all of the issues having to do with how you get right, get permits and open. And then you deal with all the vagaries and uncertainties of what happens in, in the uh, the world around you. So I learned a lot being a small business owner. What about right now? I mean, you guys are dealing with the same thing the rest of the state is, which is this virus and, and the employees. Like, how are you thinking about that? Um, so... 
first of all, this is fast moving. So we're thinking about it in the way that I described overall, which is you take one day at a time and yeah. manage your way through it. But we're doing it in the way that we're encouraging every business in California to do, which is um, think like a business owner, which is you have a responsibility to make sure you're staying open. But in addition, you're an important member of you have a responsibility to all the people that are working for you, whether that's your employees or your suppliers. And you have a responsibility to your community. And that's just good business. And you're, so that's what we're doing. You're also, I think, chairing or co-chairing like this Future of Work Commission that yes. uh, Governor Newsom created. How does you know that experience that you were just describing with the microbrewery uh, or any other, you know, with McKinsey, how does that shape the way you're thinking about that? So I'm staffing the Future of Work Commission. It's co-chaired by uh, Mary Kay Henry of the SEIU and James Manika, who's the chair of the McKinsey Global Institute. And it is really interesting to think about the future of work from the perspective of the diversity of business and people that are in California. If you said, where's the future of work going? It's easy to say, well, the technology is going to change it. There's going to be all kinds of different ways about how people work. And the answer is just give people more skills. Well, that's not the right answer. That's a component of it. But it's how do we think about creating more opportunity for everyone? How do we think about ensuring that if we're going to a world in which there's an enormous technological shift, how do we ensure that that opportunity is available to everyone, not just the people who own the technology? Well, and you're also uh, uh, overseeing the high-speed rail project, which uh, you must have drawn the short uh, straw on that one. Uh, but how do you how do connect, connect, speaking of connections, you know, connect what you just described about the future of work and what you were saying earlier about people commuting from the Central Valley. How do you see all that fitting in with the high-speed rail? Sure. So I chair the high-speed rail authority, and the governor asked me to do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, he wanted someone he could trust to be overseeing it and provide transparency and clarity and discipline to the delivery, and that's largely what we're doing. Did he also tell you, like, tell me it straight, like, I don't want to, don't sugarcoat it? He did, and that was an important part of why I agreed to do it. Um, But the other part that was the logic of it was that my interest and experience of saying we need a California that's connected and that people in the Central Valley and the full of California ought to be connected to the to the north and to the south, and that a, an ability to get from Fresno to San Francisco in less time than it today takes to drive from San Francisco to Silicon Valley is a big deal. It's game-changing. Same thing's true in the south. What do you hear on the ground when you go back to Turlock or other parts of the valley? Because there's been this real um, sort of political split where you have Kevin McCarthy and other GOP congressmen saying we don't even want this train, we don't want this. And I would imagine that might be a little different um, depending on who you talk to out there. You know, when uh, you're actually on the ground talking to people, they don't really spend a lot of time talking about big picture politics stuff. They talk about, you know, how what's my job like? What's my life like? How can I be better? It's much more about that community. And when you talk to people and have an honest conversation with them about what's that look like and how do you how would you like to give to different parts of the state? You know, I, I, you have a real honest conversation. People are in the right place. When you think about that, you know, coming back to the future of work um, and you're now thinking about the coronavirus, I mean, what how do you see those things interacting? Because, you know, this this is obviously a crisis, but there's opportunities. There's right? opportunities. I mean, and there's also the possibility that something like this could happen, you know, again. How do you build in re- resilience? You know, I think that's an important part of what the future 
can look like, which is you have to be ability to be innovative and flexible, and you also have to build resiliency into the system. That's what networks do when they're done right. And so thinking about how do you create a future in which there is that kind of speed and innovation, but it also has variability, that's what the internet was designed to do. The internet was designed to be redundant and it was designed by the Department of Defense to make sure that if any individual piece went out, the whole thing would would continue. That's the way the world is today. And so that's how you need to think about this. And, uh, you know, this, the Central Valley has to, uh, where a lot of the, you know, cheaper housing is, you know, and a lot of people are doing increasingly commuting to places like from Tracy and Turlock to the Bay Area. Those parts of those those parts of California have been very resistant, I think, to democratic politics in a lot of ways. They, there's a sense that, you know, the coastal elites don't understand us. You know, do you see, having come from that part of California and now advising the governor from San, who is from, you know, San Francisco on these issues, do you see yourself as kind of a bridge in some ways to those parts of California having come from there? Um, I think it is important to have a, an understanding and an on-the-ground connection to the richness and diversity of the state, including the Central Valley. And it does help to have been on the ground and have that experience. Um, the governor has that too, if you recall. He wasn't, he was born in Dutch flat. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't like a non-intuitive part of a conversation. In fact, it's much more, it's not a political conversation whatsoever, honestly. It is about how do we ensure that California works for everyone? And that's what you do. You don't look at people in Turlock and say, are you red or are you blue? You look at them and say, how do we help ensure that you're successful? And what can we do to help or get out of the way? All right. So we only have about a minute left and we like to end on a fun note. So favorite beer? What 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 are you, what are you Top recommending? Three. Top Qu three. Quarantine beer recommendations, Lenny. <laughs> yeah. um, so I will not do a self promotion of beers that we <laughs> Why not? Why not? So, um, you know, my original and still go to beer is Sierra Nevada. It's a, it's an old classic. It's classic. It's it's really really good, really consistent, and it is a first rate company too. If you've yeah. not been to the Sierra Nevada Brewery and what they do and in uh, that part of the state, it's a wonderful experience. Real quick, and, and what, Half Moon Bay. What do we? Half Moon we Bay. Drink? Yeah, yeah. We saw you brought us. A, thank you. A bottle of uh, <laughs> Super Tuesday beer, kind yeah. of, with pictures of the any, candidates. Any favorite blends right now? Brews right now? So we have um, whatever is the latest IPA label. All right, that is what I like to hear. All right, we're going to leave it at that. Lenny Mendoza, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And get some rest. I know, you, I know you've been working hard. <laughs> yeah. That's it for Thank this you. edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Uh, our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer is Rob Spate. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I am at MLagos, and I will be tweeting about my kids driving me crazy, I think. And I'm Scott <laughs> Schaefer. I'll be looking for that. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time. Stay healthy, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.